Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. In by Kulisevsky. Steve Cooper. Has found the way. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name's Wendy, and I'm joined by my sidekick and best friend, Bardi. Hello, Bardi. Hello, Wendy. And our tactics guy, and a man who is changing the intro music to this podcast on a weekly basis at the moment. It's Nathan A. Clark. Hello, Nathan. That's me. Yeah, the um, the content music is is not going down so well, so we, we've done away with that for a bit. Um, and we'll see what what happens to come out this week, Nathan. <laughs> We also, need to, we also need to get rid of the Conte in the titles, otherwise um, Reddit would just downvote this as well. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. They, I think people took the ironic pod title for this week's episode um, seriously <laughs> and probably thought we were being really reactionary. Oh well, it happens. There's a lot of admin to go through, so bear with me. So, firstly, thank you to the following for email. I, I did a big trawl of our inbox uh, in the deep recesses of our inbox. So I'm probably referencing people who sent in emails weeks, if not months ago. But thank you to these people. Connor McDougall, Len DiMano, Phil Mayo, Gino Tabaki, Tom Hendy, Michael Sinnott, Tucker Dietrich, Maz Mizsevich, Guy Wolf, Peter Day, James Sullivan, Mitch Yen Kastov, John Minton, Matt Pollitt, and Phil Krebs. Some great names in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, our listeners always have great names, it, it seems. Um, thank you. We, we always appreciate getting the thoughts of our listeners, and we get some great questions. Uh, I've also been through all of our old questions. I've got a day off, guys. I've been through all of our questions <laughs> and um, rooted out ones which are no longer relevant. So apologies if your question never made it onto the pod. Please do send more questions, though, because it's it's really helpful to us to kind of create a narrative for the podcast with our listeners' questions. Um, yeah, and it's, it's just nice to hear from the listeners. Congratulations to Will, Le- Will, Neary and Lorna on their wedding. Um, Will got in touch because he'd released a cover of Can't Help Falling in Love with his band, which are called Kind of This Way. Uh, he'd, he'd, he'd done that for Lorna, his fiance. 
Um, it's quite a fun cover if you fancy listening to something a bit soppy. But congratulations, Will and Lorna. I hope you had a great day. And another congratulations to our ex-sub and head coach of East Hanningfield Athletic, Greg Peth, on winning their cup final. I've seen some of the highlights. One of the goals was a you know debatable offside, but miles off. Easily they, miles they, off. They, they all count, right? <laughs> Um, Serial yeah, lo- winner, lovely work. Winner mentality, uh, alpha male. You know, that's that's the type of community that moderate the Discord. Yeah, yeah, big dog. Um, superb work. Uh, actually, the, the the finish for I think it was the third goal was was quite special. Did you see that one? Yeah, the side goes to the far corner. The vertical camera phone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was quite fun to have the highlights though. Uh, and Bardi, you've got a competition winner to announce. Yeah, for the Glory Glory Gone books written by Sam Rook, I asked for something in your life which had gone and come back. And the winner is uh, Gonzo James, who, uh, when he was 16, went out with a girl for five days before she brutally dumped him. Four <laughs> years later, out of the blue, he got a text message saying that she was going to his university and wanted to say hi. They've now been married 18 years. Ah, oh, that's lovely. That's lovely. Yeah, that's a nice gone and then come back. And I just want to give a quick shout out to James Payton, who wrote a lovely message um, in my DMs regarding Glory Glory Gone. Stay strong, buddy. Nice, nice. Um, this is from Sivanth Sivakumar, uh, who, who sent this to us a week or so ago. A few weeks ago, Bardi said the only thing he'd seen more than Spurs is his naked body, which suggests he's naked more than clothed, which also suggests, as his best friends and colleagues, does he work slash hang naked? This has really obviously bothered me. <laughs> um, Bardi, how, how, how much time do you spend naked? I spend a normal amount of being naked, showering, getting changed, getting into bed, that kind of stuff. I don't sleep naked. I don't like the feel. But um, I do spend a lot of my time naked compared to everything else. So if you think about the things you do in your life, um, or the, with, like you're conscious, being naked is probably quite high, no? I think so. I wouldn't say I'm uh, a naturist and I walk around naked, but I know the every crevice of my naked body, just yeah. like I know every crevice of Spurs. So um, when we were playing the Everton game, I I knew it. I knew it like the freckle on my thigh that we were going to concede. And that's the truth, man. Lovely. Uh, do you sleep naked? No, no. I, I, I wear pyjama shorts. Mm. I find like sleeping naked really uncomfortable. People people love it. Mm. It just feel, feels all wrong to me. I am... Um, I always have this fear that if something happens to me, I don't want to be like, say I pass away in my sleep. I don't want someone to have to come in and just like put a shit over Oh yeah, over and you were fucking, up. you were saying this on the stag dude, that your fear of death is to be discovered naked. <laughs> I, I, not just not naked. I don't want to be discovered in a moment where the first responder has to go, let's give this man his dignity back. <laughs> I don't want them to have to cover me up. So I think if I if I pass in my sleep as as whatever happens to me, at least I'm I'm clothed and I will have my dignity with me. Just <laughs> die with respect. Uh, this is from Cyril Fox, who says, even though it may hurt, can we acknowledge that Conte was right? After the performance at Everton, it's clear these players care nothing for the badge and lack the passion to compete for anything serious. I mean, I should let Bardi go first because I think Bardi's going to vehemently agree with Cyril and I think that'd be entertaining. <laughs> I feel 
can't answer first again. Um, Conte was right in everything that he said, but Conte was also incredibly wrong in everything that he did. So it's it's like just because you're correct in digging out the club and their attitude and everything else doesn't mean that we can forget the failings that you you had as a manager. So yes, he was correct that the the players can be selfish. They've never won anything. There's perhaps the wrong attitude from Levy and the rest of it. But it doesn't cover up the fact that he ultimately failed as well. I mean, there's mitigating circumstances, but he failed. Um, but he was also right. So I don't two I don't two wrongs don't make a right. And ultimately, Conte has to look at himself and and think about what how he managed the situation. He should have done better. But always, I keep saying the club should have done better as well. And on the Everton game specifically, do you feel like if they just shown a bit more passion, that we could have? could have won that game no I guess we'll get into that when we talk about Nathan's video but I do think perhaps it's not passion I think it's perhaps a bit more of a desire from the players but also a desire from the manager to see what's happening on the pitch and react responsibly perhaps taking out a midfielder who's tired and putting in Saar who's got a bit more legs perhaps mm. Saar closes down that shot um, rather than Hjoyberg who just stood there and waved at Davinson Sanchez and let it happen so go on Nathan great time to promote your your latest video I think Okay, yeah, so I just did a quick sort of 10-minute video on on playing low block and counter, basically. So I... Very bleak, I, very, very bleak video. Yeah, well, yeah, that's why I had to keep it short, right? It's like, I don't know, Some sometimes when Spurs are shit, it's like, here's a topic that's interesting, but also mm. let's not dedicate too much time and emotional energy, right? Yeah, I, I want to, like, I want to explore and be thorough and, and have the topic, but also not do, like, an hour's deep dive on, on some of these things, mm. right? So... I just looked at um, when and how our low block and, and counter game worked. And I went back to the very first game of this season, um, which was against Southampton. And I looked at the more recent game from the other week against Southampton and then finally touched on the Everton game. And it's like, I don't know, you and I, Wendy, we've been critical of playing low block and counter as a tactic. Uh, and and um, I do stand behind my personal frustrations with it, but it's like it can work if you do it right. And it's mm. just a matter of intensity, right? Beginning of the season, we're up, at, we're up two, three, four goals, three, four, sorry, up four, one against Southampton. And we're, yes, we've dropped off. Yes, we've allowed Southampton to have the ball. We haven't pressed them high, but as soon as they look like they're going to get the ball into anywhere vaguely dangerous, we pick up the intensity massively. We don't allow them. We force them backwards. We look for an opportunity to turn the ball over. And then when we win the ball, we're winning it with our with our front line and with our midfielders and we can counter mm. and we're threatening. Mm. Whereas more recently, we, we, we're so slow to react to everything. We're so lackadaisical or exhausted and so we're playing we're conceding all that space we're letting them forwards and then we're also letting them fucking take a shot right <laughs> on the edge of the box and okay as i say in the video like it's not a, a high expected goals value shot but like don't allow players to decide what they want to do in those zones right so um i won't go as far as to say that the um, that the Everton game proved Conte right, but definitely the team and the club had a great opportunity to prove him wrong, and they absolutely threw it away. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I, I agree with you that the 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 idea of low block and counter isn't necessarily bad when looked at through the lens of winning football matches. It's just that I think it's bad for us 
as sure. a club sure. after X number of years of Mourinho. And then, you know, having seen Conte briefly have us playing some really good front foot stuff where we had a lot more of possession. Um, I think it's just not what we need now. I think we just need, especially with the scores we have, I just don't think it works for us. And I don't think it works for us as a fan base in particular because of the um, historic culture of the club. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that said, I do think it can work as a system. But obviously, you need you need some urgency. You need some, you know, at, by all means, restrict the space, but then press the space. You restrict the space for a reason. Now make the most of having restricted space by pressing and, and winning the ball back. And then as a result of being on the front foot on the press, you then pour forward. And yeah. that's what we saw in those clips you showed. You know, it wasn't just about pressing and winning the ball. The players then continued their runs forward yeah. to support because one of the problems we've highlighted in recent weeks is the ball goes out to Kudasevsky, Kane, Son, whoever. They've got one option to pass to. There's 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 nothing. There's nothing on. And if they don't make that one really difficult pass, the ball gets given away and it comes back at us, and it's very frustrating. I personally, and and I'm saying this like we obviously did our post Everton reaction pod. Yeah. It was quite reactionary for us, wasn't it? Because it was, it was straight after the match. We hadn't had time to really think about it. I did a thread on Twitter about what I think went wrong. I think we completely took our foot off the gas. I think that is proven in the data. It's proven with the eye test. You can then have a discussion about why that happened. And I thought Stellini's post-match comments were, were quite telling. He He basically said we needed to pass the ball side to side. And I think that is the way to play against 10 men. You, you play lots of crossfields, you make them work from one side of the pitch to the other to try and tire them out and then create you create space off the back of that because they can't possibly cover all, the whole pitch with 10 men and then you exploit that space. But you frame that within the context of the way we've been playing football for the last six months where playing side to side essentially means playing along our own goal line to draw the opposition out. I think that's a problem. I think if you're playing side to side against 10 men who are pushing for an equaliser in your own fight you know defensive third you're essentially inviting them onto you you're giving them an opportunity to not worry about their defensive third they can push up and just worry about the two thirds in front you're 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 creating a situation where they have less of the pitch to worry about when you need to get create a situation where they have more of the pitch to worry about um so i feel like we did everton's work for them it allowed them to press into our midfield we didn't have any out out ball at all um I mean, I think the goal, if you watch it, we're just jockeying essentially side to side, side to side, slowly, cutting off passing lanes, no intensity, not worried about going out to the ball, let them have it, let them have it, let them have it, thinking, well, if they cross the ball into the box, just head it away. And then Michael Keane gets it and just twats one into the top corner. But like you say, that's unnecessary. We don't need to be doing that. We can close that ball down. And it's Kane in particular, actually, that doesn't put yep. any kind of effort into closing. That's true. And he's probably knackered. It's mm-hmm. it's probably due to the fact that Kane has played nearly every game this season. You know, I, I think there are lots of reasons why why we 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 threw away those two points against Everton. But the main one, I think, is is that the the whole um, tactical system has has become diluted now. We're not playing that we're playing Conte ball. We were playing the worst version of Conte ball, and we need a complete hard reset. And I think if Mason and Stellini try and play more Conte ball against Brighton, we will get absolutely torn apart. Absolutely torn apart by Deserby's Brighton. Because he's my so take, good tactically. My takeaway was the um, the big difference in the in the, the games that Napier showed early in the season. There was Bentenker who was there. True. Who amazing was, presser. Incredible Justin, presser. He's an incredible presser and he's an amazing first touch. He moves constantly. And I think he's a big loss. He's been a huge loss that that we've we've struggled to come through. I I'm not sure why we keep playing 
Skip and Choiberg. I think after Saar's performance in Milan, I think he needs, should be starting games. I know he gave away the penalty against Southampton, but that wasn't his fault. I think he needs to be playing. I, I do agree um, that Bentico is probably the best pressing midfielder that we that we have. But also in those clips, you see like Hojbjerg being day and night, um, Kane being day and night in his intensity, um, Simon Kulusevski being day and night in their intensity. So it's it's not just on on one or two personnel changes, but there's a, everyone in the team has dropped off significantly. It's like I don't think of Skip as like a a slow, lazy, low intensity player, right? But that's just the way that the the, the team has become. Mm. I've, like, have Arsenal players played more minutes than our guys? Shaka is running around faster than 10 Shoybergs could run. And have they been playing less minutes, more minutes? Why is it our players who are unfit? Let's have a little look. How many minutes has Shaka played? Shaka has played... 3,630, of which 2,444 in the league. Hoybier has played 2,500 in the league, 3,264 overall. So comparable numbers, I would say. Yeah. Roughly the same. Um, and including, <clears throat> including international games in Saka's minutes. I, I imagine that um, Shaka has played the majority of his minutes in possession, whereas Hoybier has probably played the majority of his minutes out of possession, which will have a subtle difference. Um, I mean, if it, if Joberg is just sitting behind the ball, doesn't really matter. He's not he's not expending the same kind of energy as as the Arsenal while pressing around the pitch. Yeah, so maybe it's. I mean, that is an argument for it not being exhaustion and more being about tactics. Perhaps. Yeah, I mean, Nathan's had some long held theories about our training methods this this season. Yeah. Um, I've got no idea what Arsenal are doing training wise. I haven't been paying enough attention to be honest. But, I mean, it'd be quite, quite interesting to know. Do we want to get into um, 2K runs before matches? <laughs> we we certainly can do. That was one of the things that came out post-Conte leaving. Um, uh, so the, 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 point, the point of that was, before they've even stepped on the pitch, he's got them doing 2K in a warm-up Pre- this pre-match. Is, this is 2K before the in-stadium warm-up is the impression I was getting. So you're thinking it's tr- a treadmill warm-up? Or an outdoor run. So... When I saw that at first, I was really um, disturbed by by um, that news. When I think like, you know, times when I've been fitter where like 2K can be a warm up. It's like, I don't know, you know, especially for, for elite athletes, right? So um, the words that is used in the piece by, um, is it Sammy Mockville? He uses the word run right and so if you're running which to me is um moderate to high intensity if you're running 2k before a match then you're probably using up some of your you know even if it's only a few percentage points if you're only using up five percent four percent three percent of your energy that matters at 83 minutes when you need intensity in defending the area in front of your box right but if you're doing a two kilometer at like a, a six, seven, eight minute split. If you're doing a, a zone two jog, it's really not that bad. And I think that if you look at a strong trend where we started slow and and finished hard, there's one way of looking at that and saying our players are just already exhausted and they're just saving themselves. The other would be that actually, no, we need to get into a, we need to be warm at the start of the match and, and it's taken us too long to warm up. So first time, first time I read that, I was really um, 
disturbed. And now I kind of want more information. Mm. There's no way that a Premier League footballer should be exhausted running two kilometers. It's, you know, it's not even a half a park run. It's, it's, 10, it's 10 minutes. It's a 10 minute run. Like chilled out. It's for professional footballer. It's 10 minutes of running. That's not, that's not like, you're not making a run it, half it, marathon. In, in and of itself, no, no footballer will be tired from 2K. It's nothing to them. But when you bear in mind that that is 20 to maybe 30% of what they would run during a match, it feels a little odd. I mean, the, I guess the thing is, whoever told Sammy Mockbad about that must have found it notable or unusual because otherwise it wouldn't be newsworthy. So so it kind of depends who's used the word run, right? If the player or the player's agent has used the word run, um, that makes sense with complaining about it and the idea that players were baffled about doing it. Whereas if the journalist has been told they were doing 2K, they were going 2K, they were jogging 2K, and then he is not unreasonably reinterpreted that and use the word run mm. then that's where that's come in so it's where in the chain the the implication of moderate to high intensities come in i think i think uh but it's to 10 minute run at a five minute split um is is probably beginning a tiny bit to 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 cost them some of their stamina for the day to come personally um again even if it's just a couple of percentage points you're still um spending something you might need later I also think it's like there's an element of like the framing of it as well, because it almost feels like a punishment type thing. Like, yeah, yeah. you know how in preseason he had them doing the absolutely exhausting run and we as we loved watching it. It was really fun to watch because it was like, who's got the stamina to keep going to the end? But yeah. and it was fun at the time It was because it was new and because he was new to the players. Mm-hmm. If they did the same thing now, with things going as they are now, it would feel like punishment. It would feel like he is being horrendously evil and making and you know physically punishing them for not performing well enough. And and I imagine that's how this could feel if it wasn't framed in the right way. I mean, the thing is, these these are highly paid, highly trained coaches who should know a lot more about sports science than we do. And was it Conte's brother was a sports scientist? Is he is he like the fitness trainer? the one that's left, that they have a specific fitness coach at Spurs who will know a lot more than we do about um, warm-ups. Um, they need to get over themselves. And, <laughs> like this, this article about... Um, so um, Conte, after they lost in Lisbon, Conte, the team were furious with the fact that he changed their training session from 2pm to 11am because they lost. They lost. Get in and start training. This, <laughs> no, I... No, but that was you. You've taken that out of context because the point there was that he regularly changes the days and times of training, which means they can't plan anything in their personal life. So yeah, imagine if you like be, stop losing games, run harder, <laughs> stop complaining. It's the whole shocked, furious, couldn't believe, flabbergasted. You're being told to run by your fitness coach and your manager. Run. That's what you're paid to do. You're paid to run. Jesus. I do, I do get that. I do get that. But it, like, if you've made arrangements to pick the kids up from nursery at a certain time, then your coach no, the wait, day before no changes. There's no way Harry Kane is popping along to um, Green Froggers, whatever nurseries <laughs> are called, to pick up his kids. This it just, just doesn't happen. I don't know, man. Like, you're gonna, they've got personal lives, and it is quite intrusive to be changing their hours at the last seconds. Um, and that's the, that was the point of the article that they're, you know, them and their families were being impacted by Conte changing things on a whim. 
um, and then like using under 21 players to make up the numbers, but literally having them stand there like traffic cones. So <laughs> not actually, they're not getting anything from the training and then they're missing their own training sessions and sometimes matches because Conte wants them to stand still and be like <laughs> defenders uh, on, the, on the training pitch. That was, well, that was they, what the article said. They, they followed it perfectly because they still stood still against Everton. <laughs> anyway, I think we should move on. For... All right, yeah. Let's move yeah. on from Conte. Before, I, I, yeah, I'm coming across as way too gammon. <laughs> <laughs> this is why someone ordered you a gammon to the weather chips party. and beans yeah um let's talk briefly about some other managers uh richard healy says a quick question for nathan i've seen you appear to really be sold on Ange Postacoglu. admittedly i haven't watched a huge amount of scottish football to be able to judge but surely the low level of competition of a league makes his job significantly easier what is it about his skill set or side of football that you think could be transferable or successful at Tottenham? Is he an elite coach? Yeah, this is this is um, this is fair, obviously. Uh, yeah. Or it's definitely fair to say. I think it's fair to say. Look, um, the biggest question mark over Postecoglou is how well what he's doing currently transfers to um, a higher level of competition, a tougher league, or a situation where he doesn't have a huge talent and finance advantage over the competition why what i dislike is just dismissing him for being the celtic manager yeah which i get yeah. that which is because it's like um i'm not calling for neil lennon <laughs> to be <laughs> to be coach <laughs> right i'm not calling either for brendan rogers right but i'm looking at what Postcoglu and how he's doing it right it's not just oh he's winning the league with celtic because again i reckon body could have a decent go at that right <laughs> it's it's the way he's doing it it's the principles it's the tactical ideas and, and adaptations that that have caught not just my eye but the eyes of other people um and and it's his personality as well right and and he comes across really really well i didn't want to i didn't want to uh hammer on that one too much because you know it's a bit extra inch of us but he seems like a really good guy <laughs> right? like, well, I do, like i do think that should be on the the checklist for the next manager yeah. like be a decent human being not like just be be someone we can as fans get behind yeah yeah I, who doesn't set him present himself at odds with the club yeah, like, man, fuck it and set himself like outside of the club <laughs> yeah we like that should be i think we do need someone who's bought into it yeah or, or at least pretends to be bought into it so he has he uses a very um uh aesthetically pleasing possession game mm. that is um you know, not not dissimilar to to the approach that Guardiola uses at City, um, that we now unfortunately have to acknowledge that Arteta uses at Arsenal. Um, this this very sort of wide um, possession football, with lots of short passes and lots of triangles, and it's uh, it's good stuff. Where um, and I did this in my little video that I put up for free on Reddit. Um, where I'm a little more concerned is in the counter pressing game, the defensive end of, of a possession game. Where uh, in Scotland right now he keeps his centre backs quite far away from the pressing action, and I think that probably that's because in Scotland they just can win the ball back with their midfielders, and they don't need to involve the centre backs. And maybe the profile, obviously, mm. uh, we know Cameron Carter Vickers is is quite a, a passive centre back. I don't, I can't yeah. even remember the name of his current partner. I don't know what his profile is like. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that in Scotland, lots of teams use target men. So if you can just isolate the target men and yeah. disinvolve them, um, then then you're doing all right there. So definitely, he would need to tweak his counter pressing game. Um, but yeah, I I I I really quite liked his Australian national team as well. Um, obviously, they were in the 
when they were playing outside of, of Asia, um, they were on the opposite end of of the spectrum to Celtic, where they are a constant disadvantage. And even though when they went to major international competition, they lost everything, I was still fairly impressed with what they were doing. They used to back three sometimes as well. Mm-hmm. I, I think what Spurs would prefer is for Ange Postacoglu to have, or to go to another Premier League club first, mm. see how he does, and then appoint him from there. Well, this is a fun game, right? If De Zerbi leaves Brighton in, in the summer, do they go for Postacoglu? Do they go for mm. Schlott? Uh, yeah. Do they go for company? Yeah, this is it. I mean, because there there are lots of managers that have been in in leagues considered weaker, come into the English league system and and done really well. The Graham Potts is a great example. Ostersons to Swansea um, did an outstanding job. Ostersons did an outstanding job at Swansea. Got picked up by Brighton. Looked incredible at Brighton. Now he's bad. Um, now all of that is completely dismissed. He's bad. None and void. Yeah, yeah, bad manager. There's always a worry when players um, when managers come across. Back in the day, Wenger came from Japan. Mm. Um, Deserby was being pied off by most of the mainstream media because of, of his uh, job records. If Postigoglu comes along then I don't know I don't think it's a bad thing coming from Scotland you know I'm not I'm not against it uh, yeah and I think one thing you certainly can say is he will be used to high pressure matches because the old firm is as almost as high pressure as it gets um, you know he plays Champions League football as well it's, there's something in that um, but talking about uh, managers who play a possession style not dissimilar to Pep Guardiola's Many, many people have asked, how about Vincent Company's manager? And there is definitely some reporting around Spurs having interest in Vincent Company, which does intrigue me quite a bit. I've really enjoyed watching his Burnley team on a couple of occasions this year. Um, again, very likable character, which I think is is helpful. Um, the recruitment of Burnley this year has been exceptional, really yeah. exceptional. And I think the most interesting thing about their style is what he does with the fullbacks. So again, it's a bit like what Pep does. He has fullbacks that can play on the outside and can play in the the line of six or five or six in the final third. Or they can become a midfielder and build up. So they they build up typically with a 2-3, sometimes a 3-2. Um, and the fullbacks can either both come inside and be be midfielders, or one goes outside, or both goes out, both go outside, depending on the the um, phase of play. Uh, and they, obviously, they've got really versatile fullbacks that that can make that happen. Um, the question would be whether we have Spence. Come, Spence plays through the middle quite a bit. That's, that's a thing he likes to come inside. Um, but yeah, companies a really interesting candidate. I think. Do either of you have an interesting company? Definitely, definitely. So we've been we've been linked uh, more recently, which is interesting because I I sort of I looked at um, you know two two <clears throat> former players now young coaches in company and Carrick doing things in the championship, interesting, interesting games. And I thought, well, surely company is just going to wait around for the city job. And meanwhile, Carrick doesn't have a clear line to United job for quite a while, surely. And also he's expert. So I was, I was leaning towards Carrick based purely on, on those kinds of things and thinking that he would, he would make more sense, but the links have come out for, for company. So yeah, I mean, yeah, really, really good football. Um, Clearly, clearly, Guardiola school stuff. Please reference um, my twenty-minute diatribe on the history of Dutch football for, for where that comes from. Um, 
it's just like it's just the extent to which he's clearly waiting around for the city job. Do we want someone who's going to be here a year, two years, waiting for for Guardiola to go, or do we think that Guardiola is going to stay in the city job for another five years? In which case, it doesn't matter too much. I mean, I just think two or three years is about the time managers stay at Premier League clubs anyway. Now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if he gets the two years at Tottenham, he's done something right. So I'd, <laughs> yeah. be, all right. I'd yeah. be all right with that. Okay, yeah. In which case, he, I think he's in one of the better options for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I would agree with that. How do you feel about him, Bardi? Yeah, no, I think, I think this would be fine. I've, I'm turning towards him. Um, people are worried about him going to City, but if it means City wants to poach our manager, then things are good for us, and I'd, I'd be happy with that. Yeah, and I guess the main thing with that is if you go for company, then have your next guy lined up. Like, know what you want to follow company. Have someone who uses a similar system. Um, has some similar principles because if you're signing players for signing players for a longer period than the manager then there needs to be some continuity there um, we tend to sign players to four five six year contracts managers are, only tend to stick around for two three years so let's do what we never do here's a clip from the podcast in two years time i really like what schlott's doing with brighton <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> 19-20-intake-into-our-academy-so-that-puts-him-in-the-same-group-as-Nile-John-Yago-Santiago-Calum-C-say-that-group-he-will-turn-20-at-the-end-of-this-month. Um, so still quite young, but not extremely young. Uh, not someone that I had pinned hopes on, to be honest. Interesting. Not someone I had pegged as one of the better players, but, um, I'm really pleased with the way he's developed this year. Uh, feels like maybe he's a bit of a late developer. I've not watched loads of the, uh, under 21s this season. So I'm going by mainly the couple of games I've watched and reports I've read from people on the Discord and, and people elsewhere. Uh, he is a wing forward, typically plays on the left, has been in the squad recently as left wing back cover. Interesting. That's not a natural position to him. Um, I don't know that he's ever played left wing back. Uh, but that's where he, that's, that's been the idea of him covering the squad. And okay. they are currently looking to tie him down to a new contract. Apparently there's interest in him from other Premier League clubs. My feeling is that our current batch ones, 21s are okay, but not amazing. And that he is one of the better players in the group. 
um they're actually doing they're putting together some really good results recently they've, they've and the under 18s are as well things are definitely going better for the teams as a whole but i'm not sure certainly in the case of the under 21s that the individual players are anything exceptional interesting so he's he's now sort of formally a member of the first team squad does that mean he's not playing under 21 games anymore um i suspect he'll play under 20 some under 21 games okay. probably a little less than he might have otherwise have done. But yeah, by all the reporting, he seems to be considered a first-team squad member, as does Alfie Devine, who I do think is elite. I think Alfie Devine is yeah. a really, really exciting player. How old is Devine now? So I think he is 18. Let me just check that. Uh, yeah, yes, it? Devine is 18. Um, not 19 until August. Uh, central midfielder, but an attacking central midfielder. So... He could probably play in a midfield three. Definitely yeah. wouldn't want to risk him in the Premier League in a midfield two. He'd, he'd play as a 10, if anything, in the Premier League, I think. Um, like immense talent, really good vision, really good execution of pass. Lovely ability to sort of take the ball in tight spaces and glide away with it. Just really bright, sparky midfielder. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to see what happens with him. I'm hoping he'll get a season-long loan next year because he'll then be... Uh, basically we've kept him around we've spoken about this before we've kept him around so that he's eligible for um, a very specific rule in the Champions League slash Europa League (laughs) Um, uh, which will help us out with our squad next year with how many players we can name etc etc and in the future Uh, so does that mean we can only in the summer yeah yeah okay yeah he needs he needs he needs to play a lot of men's football now that's that's where we are with Divine he needs to play uh, but yeah, he's really, really, really good. I'm very excited about him. John Youngblood says, Previously, you guys have talked about managers submitting to a director of football model. With that in mind, wouldn't it be more prudent of Levy to hire a director of football who enjoys a possession attacking style to then appoint managers who fit that DNA? Would Michael Edwards or Paul Mitchell be decent options to replace Paratici? Similarly, Mikey T says, What should we be looking for in a new director of football? Um, he, he says, Assuming there's not a ready-made name out there, what skills should we be looking for? So, what would make a good director of football at Spurs? And do you agree with John's point that we should be looking for a director of football who believes in a particular DNA? Or or at least when it is um, handed to them from the chairman that they accept it and they go, yeah, sure, he is Nuno Espirito Santo, mm. uh, you know um yeah i i get i get this question a lot right where it's like okay where's your list of directors of football and it's like i've no idea man i have no idea i mean i i'm sure like if i've really really tried nailed down i could get a vague idea but the thing is you can see that a club is doing smart things but you can't be sure if they've arrived at them um through smart means right it could be an accident you don't know if it's necessarily the guy who's the director of football or just on paper as a director of football you don't know what they're like as a character you don't know how much they're just getting through the agents or the chief scout or whatever you don't know who is and who isn't using data um so i it's really really tricky to be like this guy's good um, mm. It's like for me, I would want to interview a bunch of people and then mm. learn about their process and then hire them based on the the process that they describe in, in in interview form. But at which point, I've inserted myself into the process here. I would simply just make myself director of football, right? <laughs> so I, it's it's difficult to to sort of to play that game. Um, you mentioned Paul Mitchell, who was previously at Spurs and said that 
that Daniel Levy turned his dream into his nightmare. So I suspect he's probably not going to come back. And then also Michael Edwards, who was also formerly a Spurs for a while, doesn't speak so poorly of Spurs. So Edwards is is probably my one example of like a, of of it seems to me like the process is pretty good, right? So Edwards was essentially director of football at Liverpool. Um, he came in, I think, during well, he was sorry, he was in a more junior role um, when Brendan Rodgers was manager. He was junior to to Camoli, also formerly of Spurs. Um, Camoli, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm getting, I'm going to be, a, I'm going to do a tangent again. Camoli did this fucking <laughs> thing where he's like, oh yeah, we've got American owners and they want to do data based recruitment. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get Andy Carroll because he wins all of his aerial jaws, and I'm going to get Stuart Downing and Jordan Henderson because they're really good at crossing, and then we'll simply cross into. Oh wait, that, that hasn't worked for some reason. <laughs> So that was the first attempt at, uh, at Moneyball in, in the Premier League. It was Camoli's crossing to the big lads, but with data. Um, and then uh, Edwards sort of took the senior data guy role. But um, but Rogers, and this is why I don't want Rogers at Spurs, Rogers would not give way. He, he, he demands... Um, significant power over transfers every club that he's at and that in my opinion is why things always start off pretty well with Rodgers because he's a very good tactician and then in his second year at Celtic in his third year at Leicester in his third year at Liverpool things get gradually get worse and worse and worse because he's bad at recruitment but demands to have control over it so for me Rodgers is not an option anyway arrive at this point where there's there's this moment in time where Edwards is director of football Liverpool don't have a manager and he gets to pick he picks Klopp and after that, uh, Klopp subscribes to a director of football model very happily. And Edwards' recruitment is, I mean, borderline flawless, mm-hmm. right? And Liverpool become um, maybe the best team in the world for a while and, and, and win loads, right? So, wow, hats off to Edwards. Done an incredible job. Um, his process is... is is uh uses data heavily he's still seems to be able to work well with coaches um that seems really promising there is one little thing that i've read the other day which is that he's only ever done one manager appointment he he appointed klopp huge huge victory there but he nearly appointed ancelotti instead and that for me would have been a pretty big miss so i mean just the complete opposite styles yeah that they that they were they were like two of the final three in consideration points away from a good approach to hiring coaches this is kind of what i mean with like you can you can get a good result without necessarily a good process how did he arrive at picking klopp maybe it's just the Klopp said yeah i can work with the director of football no problem that's kind of what we did at dortmund so yeah sure (laughs) so edwards edwards would be like the one name i can put forward but even he has some question marks over him yeah. And I think the thing is, people always say, oh, you know, Edwards is amazing. He signed so-and-so and so-and-so yeah. and so-and-so. And the point of that is, yes, they were signed whilst he was there. But if he's the one personally picking out these names for him to sign, that's a bad process. The, the names for the, for the list should be generated by the teams that he's created. And the point, I think, is that what he's done really well is he's set up teams that clearly work and deliver the best talent for their needs. And I think that's where things clearly aren't working out at Spurs because it's not joined up. And that's when we always talk about strategy. We always talk about, first and foremost, we have to appoint the right manager and then everything follows from there. But in many ways, that's not true. Forget I just said that. It's, it's have the strategy in place 
have the systems in place and appoint the manager that fits in with yeah. the strategy and the systems. Um, and I think that's what Liverpool got really right under Edwards. Everything was le- leading in the right way. All the systems and processes meshed together to deliver the players that the, the right manager needed at that time. And Spurs have got that horrendously wrong for a long period of time. I mean, it, it goes back decades. I can't think of a team that's had more directors of football than us. There's David Pleat, Arneson, Camoli, Baldini, Paratici. There's We've always got somebody in charge. I think if we're going to go the next one, what, what key skills should they have? They shouldn't have a, a criminal record would be a very good start. <laughs> one. One. Let's Not. let's do a let's do a CBR check or whatever it's called. <laughs> yeah. Well, the absolute hilarity of uh, the, the 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 reporting this week that Spurs are doing due diligence on on manager candidates, like as if we give a shit about due diligence. We've literally just import, appointed someone in Paratici who there were countless rumours about, yeah. countless rumours about, and we, we've tried to stick with him and put him on extended leave of absence despite the fact that he's been charged with i mean it's not it's a nonsense um but like nathan i've got no idea on names i mean the people in people who work in football will have loads of ideas of people who are doing good work um, my mates who work currently somewhat junior positions at various clubs in europe so those would be my picks for direction of football Spurs. yeah well this is the thing so so michael edwards was the head of performance analysis at portsmouth for five years then he was the head of performance analysis at spurs for two years in 2009 so you know did did the hard yards at a, a smaller club with yeah. smaller systems and structures went to spurs much bigger club much more many more challenges and then from there he became head of performance analysis analysis at Liverpool which stayed in for just about 18 months then he became director of technical performance which he did for two years then he became technical director and then sporting director so there's progression here so what Nathan just said about one of his friends getting the role is not unrealistic like that's how things work in football these people start off in more junior roles and over time they grow the difference with Edwards I suppose is head of performance analysis is quite a hands-on role in terms of coaching and being close to the action I would say whereas your friends Nathan correct me if I'm wrong tend to work more in recruitment yeah some overlap of skills but they're not all the same skills um just to point Matt Trevelyan um Let's have a little chat while we're talking about ownership and stuff. Let's have a little bit of chat about the season ticket price freeze and take a moment to say big up to the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust yeah. who have done really, really good work in ensuring that the club did not put the prices up as previously reported. It's, it's really good. It yeah, seems like... Sorry, buddy. It seems mm-hmm. like... Um, they we were due to put the the prices up that that was the plan, and then the trust went in and sort of read to the room to to the board and said, "You cannot do that right now." And, and in my opinion, that is the best use of the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust, reflecting the opinion of the fan base and the reality of what it's like on the ground being a Spurs fan at the moment. So massive success, Matt Lazy, massive success. Um. I want to also talk briefly about this petition that's doing the rounds. Have you seen this, Nathan? Uh, yeah, people keep sending it to me. <laughs> Have you seen this, Bardi? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I kind of disagree with it. I know where you stand on this, Windy, and I kind of stand with you on it. Mm. So there's this, this I, got, I got linked to it. Basically, um, people come, when you've got a, an account with a certain number of followers, people want you to retweet stuff all the time or put your weight behind things and get the word out about these petitions. And I, I had a look at this petition and uh, firstly, why I don't really understand why someone would use a change.org petition to try and remove Daniel Levy. The only person that could remove Daniel Levy is Daniel Levy or Joe Lewis. 
Um, so change.org is going to have no impact. So really, it's it's a publicity stunt. It's some you know, let's get as many signatures as possible to show that there's a weight of feeling around this. Is, yeah. is the idea? I think. I get I, basically change.org petitions have basically changed nothing ever so far, right? Mm-hmm. But what happens is um, you get a certain number of signatures on a thing, and then some journalists will write about that's mm-hmm. happened, and then that creates some actual sort of vague external pressure. But I think that let's say there was a million signatures on that. And and as a result, um, you know, Dan Kilpatrick, Jack Pitbrook, uh, Alistair Gold wrote articles about it. Maybe that gets back to Joe Lewis and then that probably just fizzles out there. To be honest, I don't see it going anywhere. Mm. Um, buddy, you you write sort of media releases as your job, right? So yeah. <laughs> what what are the errors in the petition? Oh, I haven't I haven't read the position or, or gone okay. through it, but I kind of I just don't see similar. The purpose. Yeah, I don't see the purpose of it. There's quite a few now, and I I just think people retweeting a it's not even a gathering together of like minded individuals who are going to do something. It's just somebody putting a name on on a form and sending it out. It's matchsticks in the ocean, man. There's no no change is going to come about it. You're right. The purpose of it is to show a groundswell of opinion that this needs to be discussed. So, for example, I think if the government if enough people sign something, then it has to be spoken about in in the House of Commons. They have to talk about it, and it brings it to the fore. I don't think Enoch are, are blind to w- what's been happening out there. They clearly see that there's there's a, an anger towards them, which is shown by the fact that they froze the season tickets. I just don't think it's going to change anything. A petition won't change anything. The movement needs it needs a it needs a, someone to lead it. It needs a group of people to lead it. It needs a proper it needs a proper physical presence at the stadium. It needs to stop being so anti those who are kind of center at the moment so you have those who are really kind of leave you out and then you have a huge amount of everybody else which i kind of sit in as well who don't really care who are kind of nonplussed about it and know that they're going to be ineffective and you need to get those people on board and they just need to change their tone and stop being so aggressive and when someone like windy questions the purpose of the petition why are you immediately going on the attack against that individual there just seems to be this inability to discuss enoch and daniel levy sensibly and properly and without that nothing's ever Mm. Uh, to be honest, this when I read the blurb in the petition, it made my spidey senses tingle because they'd they'd written Daniel Levy's name with the E's replaced by pound signs, <laughs> which That's I thought was sick. childish, but also like it does really bad it, SEO. It, pretty bad SEO. It feeds into like the anti-Semitic trope yep. as well, and I really yeah. despise anything that does that. And then. I did a bit more digging and um, one of the people involved has used the word parasite to describe Levy. Um, so, like, I'm not signing that petition purely because of that. Like, I wouldn't sign it because of that. But let alone, I just don't think it's a good idea. What I will say, I think, is really a smart approach to a, to this. This idea of, of a change of ownership of Spurs is what's happening at the account ch- at Change for Spurs, who uh, have, have stated firmly that they are not... Enoch out or or Enoch in. They 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 aren't campaigning one way or the other, but they do want to bring together Spurs fans to have a conversation about the ownership of the club. And they've got a really um a well-made website, which to me looks like it has a lot of potential. They're trying to uh, put people onto their cause. I think this is a more sensible way, personally, of of gathering like-minded fans and having a proper discussion about what the alternatives are. My fear is that the alternative to Enoch and Daniel Levy 
is a lot worse than Enoch and Daniel Levy. That said, we've been very clear in this podcast that none of us want Daniel Levy in charge of any footballing decisions anymore. Um, yeah. I mean, personally, I'm way more angry about the the proposed European Super League, the move to Stratford, than Daniel Levy not signing some fucking players. Like that, they're, they're the things that annoy me more personally. But I do get it. I do like if you if you if you see what Chelsea are doing and the amount of money they're spending and the way they back managers, and then you see what Spurs have have done historically, because I think we're actually improving then I get why you'd be annoyed by that because you're paying the most expensive season tickets in the country. But I don't know that there is a, a better solution out there that, that f- for me fits with my ethos around supporting Spurs and my morality around human rights issues and, and potential owners that, that come from areas that are essentially sports washing, um, like we've seen with Newcastle and the change of ownership there, which is obviously a horrendous thing. Um, is that enough on ownership? For now. <laughs> For now. Um, Bardi, I, I wanted to ask you about this because I thought it was a good question. This is we, this has been lingering for a little while. Um, it's from Aidan Rio, who sent this a while back. He said, any regrets about what was said on the Sky Sports overlap last year? Literally everything has come to bite us. No, you can't, can't really, you can't be asked to go on something and give your opinion on something on the, in the immediate and then worry about how it ages. Unfortunately, that's kind of what we do here. We give an opinion. Sometimes it turns out to be correct. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. And everything I said at, on the overlap at that point was correct. I was there to talk about Spurs finishing above Arsenal and everybody was in a positive frame of mind and we thought it was, it was going to be great. And I remember I was sat next to Robbie when the news about the £100 million war chest came through. And I leaned <laughs> over to Robbie and I went, oh, look at that, another £100 million for us. but that's what otherwise you've got to take some joy in those moments so Mm. no I don't regret anything I only regret a few things I've ever said um, when it comes to Spurs everything else is it's kind of what I'm here to give an opinion though to to give my potato based analogy on on Tottenham (laughs) there you go Nathan there's the intro music for the for the podcast Um, Edith Piaf non je ne regret rien (laughs) Um, uh Nathan, do you have any regrets about anything you said on the overlap? Uh, maybe I do actually regret a tiny bit engaging with with Ty just mm. at all. But mm. that's, yeah. that's what he does. It's very, it's very powerful in person. I regret what the way that Spurs have been run in the time between then and now. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, we'll do a little bit on Harry Kane. I, I do. I, I wanted to talk about James Madison, but maybe we should talk about James Madison on on next podcast. Let's let's talk a little about Harry Kane, and then we'll call it a day. So we've got loads of questions on Harry Kane, as you can imagine, our star player. Um, Nathan's friend, Nico Morales, says, how much does the football, the team, the coaching ideal change with him approaching to wild up his career? Dan Alvarez says, a lot of a new manager talk has been about who could inspire Kane to stay on. And I'm wondering if that's a good idea. Uh, quietly, he's only at 0.57 non-penalty expected goals and expected assists per 90 this season, which is pretty average. Level with guys like Tony, Alvarez, Martinelli, and way behind Haaland, Jesus, Salah, etc., um, surprisingly only marginally ahead of Son and Richarlison he's obviously such a special player but a guy who is pushing 30 can't press and is in the last year of his deal doesn't seem like a core piece of an actual rebuild especially if United would be offering 60 to 80 million I think if he'd be open to re-signing you'd obviously need to consider it but keeping him for one more year before losing him for free seems insane to put it another way if Kane played for Leicester or something and we were linked with him this summer how excited would you be and finally Daryl Brugink says will Harry Kane be sold in the summer should Harry Kane be sold in the summer? Mm. Um, 
I did like when I was doing my my video on the the low block thing. Like you can you can criticize Hoiberg, especially your body. You can you can <laughs> criticize uh, Skip and Son and Perisic, but like Kane pretty much stands still, <laughs> right? And he's the first line, yeah. So it's like, does Skip want to jump ahead of Kane necessarily, or 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 is he waiting? Is everyone waiting for the player in front of them to go Ooh. forward, right? Is every, is it all the chain? Um, and how much how much of our um, lack of intensity in various defensive situations starts with Kane being quite passive? Um, I did a video last year about us pressing high with Kane and I said look the intensity is not great but he's quite smart in his pressing and he cuts off angles and then he allows the players around him to be to 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 do the energy kind of thing um but things are definitely rough at this end of the season I think that um my current feeling is that we've got to manage his minutes a lot better yes yes right I mean he hasn't had an ankle injury in quite a while. That feels to be in a pretty good place. The electro acupuncture <laughs> clearly works, I guess. Um, but man, I think that we what we can't do, then let me be specific, what we can't do is have um, another full season in which Harry Kane leads our defending for mm-hmm. every game mm-hmm. of every mm-hmm. competition all season, right? So either we need to manage his minutes better or he needs to play as the number 10 where someone else sets the tone in our pressing mm-hmm. game. Um, and maybe he only places the number 10 out of possession and then whatever things shift around. But um, yeah, I think I think there there are reasonable concerns over his over his pressing game for us. And while there continues to be um, concerns from us about how he may limit us. Um, that's not the perception outside of Spurs. So if people are offering huge sums of money for him, it might be something worth considering. Having said that, in terms of him putting up 0.57 expected goals plus expected assists per 90 this season, I'm not worried. Like In possession, he's still one of the best players in the world. Um, And and anything I've said about his defensive game and anything else, we have to keep that in mind. What I'd like to do is... um, Sign him to a new contract immediately. Um, bring in a coach who wants to press high. Um, encourage them to have license to manage Kane's minutes as they see fit, um, and see how things go and uh, and work it out from there. But yeah, I, I think I think there can be concerns. Certainly, if the reason we brought in Mourinho and the reason that we brought in Conte is to bring in a big name serial winner megastar <laughs> so that Kane would want to stay at the club that has failed mm. and we cannot you know go for Enrique um or even Pochettino just because that's someone who will keep Kane at the club we have to make the right decision for us as a club first um and then hope that that means that, that Kane has interest in Spurs afterwards yeah yeah Kane is an incredible footballer. He's I would never see a better striker at Spurs in my lifetime. Yeah. 
And right now, with everything being so miserable, Kane is the only thing that brings us any joy. So I think while we're looking at it, we're thinking with our heart, we're like, we can't sell this guy because if this guy goes, what we're left with is absolute trash. There's nothing left. But then there is the point that if we sell Kane for the 60, 80 million pounds, we reinvest into a team that can be that high-pressing team. I think with Kane, we're looking at more low-block encounter probably because he's so good at, at passing and then moving the ball up that way. I don't want to sell Kane, but then I do think there is a light. We have to start thinking about life after Kane. Yeah. And we we can't afford to let him go for free because nobody's buying players at the moment. We, we're really struggling to sell players. Half the players are worth anything are out on loan because the rest of Europe doesn't have money. So if someone comes and offers you £80 million, you sell him and then you reinvest it into the team and um, you do that. Otherwise, like Nathan says, you sign a new contract and you tell Kane you're not going to play every minute. I don't care how many records you're chasing. You're going to sit on the bench and we're going to play with Charleston through the middle against certain teams. It's a really complicated one because we have so much heart and soul tied in to this guy that um, it does seem like the end of the world selling him but sometimes every team has to move on from their greatest player at some point it, it's just nature it's just life I, I'm at the opposite extreme position um, for me with everything that's happened and the position we're in now um, even after the City stuff for me Harry Kane is not available for sale under any circumstances and he okay. has to stay and we build the oh, team okay. around him I think he is too precious to us as a fan base right now and too precious to the team in terms of the amount of goals and assists that he provides for us to even consider, contemplate replacing him. I don't think we could get close to replacing him. Um, I think the goals and assists more than outweigh the slightly muted press. I understand that, you know, the weakest cog can can break the machine, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think there's a way around there. I think you have him, as Nathan said, players at 10. I think I mentioned that a few pods ago as something we could look to, towards in a 4 one um, He's really smart cutting passing lanes out. And if we're playing in a possession-heavy system with a counter-press and he's part of that counter-press, I think it can work. I think it can work just fine. I don't want him having to, like, um, win the ball back in his own half and carry the ball forward. That's that would be completely awful use of him. We don't want him to be carrying the ball for half a pitch on a regular basis. But I think if you, if we've got a team that's has lost the ball and is counter pressing in the opponent's half, then there are a few better players in the world than unlocking passes, unlocking like finding runs from a counter press than Harry Kane. I think he's absolutely ideally suited to that. And of course, he's an incredible finisher as well. Um, but then that means we sell Sun. I don't think we can do another season with the two of them. I think we might get away with one more. I think anything beyond that is going to be a major struggle. And I think we should be looking to sell Son, if not this summer, than the one after. Uh, but I'd really like to get him, <laughs> get him to have one more good season in a sell. At a high point, I think like a sell at this low point is it feels like such a waste. Um, but again, like it's about managing his minutes. I think we need a manager who's going to be brave and a bit more modern and actually not play Sullen Kane every week. And I look at the way Eddie Howe's managing Callum Wilson and Alexander Isak, and Isak's played brilliantly and then been on the bench for the next game. And that's because they're playing two games in a week, and it's just so sensible, it's so obvious. But Spurs managers repeatedly just refuse to do that. Well, first we didn't have any other alternatives, but now they have. Conte's got Richarlison. Just not played him instead of Kane. Never once played him instead of Kane, I don't think. Maybe once, maybe once. Um, makes, no, makes no sense to me. Yeah. 
lads it's been a lot of fun we've got loads more questions to get through um in the next few weeks um but we've we've whittled through a fair few today it's been it's been good um thanks to everyone for asking about all these different subjects we appreciate it you have been listening to the extra inch with me windy my sidekick and best friend barney and our tactics guy if you like this there's plenty more at patreon.com forward slash the extra inch Production is by Nathan A. Clark. Our logo, artwork and website are designed by Trayton Miller. Our music is by David Lindmer. You can find him on Instagram at David Lindmer. Do check him out. He's great. Great, great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us at podcast at theextrainch.co.uk. Subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. And most importantly, be sure to tell all of your Spurs friends. Shout out to the X-Sub, we love every single last one of you. And of course, come on you Spurs. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl! Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>